start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly you're doing the impossible. Those words were spoken by St. Francis of Assisi right around the 11th century. I love those words because there are times when things just seem impossible. I read a story this week, I think it's a true story, of a woman who was walking along a beach in Cancun. She was on vacation and had her iPad tucked under her arm because she was looking for a quiet place under a palm tree to read her book. Well, she was walking along the sand, she tripped over an object, and she reached down, picked it up, it was a lamp, she brushed it off, and a genie appeared. Like I said, it's a true story. And the genie looked at her and said, congratulations, you've found my lamp, I'm going to grant you one wish. And she scratched her head and said, one wish? It's always three wishes, what do you mean one wish? And the genie said, well, you know, the economy's kind of bad right now, and it's hard to find good help, so we're we're short-staffed, so it's it's one wish. Any wish you want, I'll grant you a wish. And so she thinks about it for a minute, and pulls out her iPad and goes to the maps. And she shows the genie a picture of the Middle East. And she said, there's always seems to be turmoil in the Middle East. My, my wish is that there would be peace in the Middle East. But before the words left her mouth, she paused and said, no, no, no. Matter of fact, that's not what I want. What I really want is I want world peace. That's my wish. And so the genie stroking his goatee and said, well, boy, that's, that's a hard one. Again, you know, we, we're, we're pretty short-staffed right now. And that's, I'm kind of in training. And so um, that, that's a hard, that's impossible. I can't, I can't do that. Think of something else, something easier. And she paused for a moment and said, okay, well, you know, I, I, do, I would like to get married someday. And so would you bring me a man that's kind and compassionate? A man that is not interested in the sports on, in sports on the weekend, just wants to, to be with me. Uh, a man that when I come home in the evening, he already has dinner prepared. A man who will clean the dishes after dinner. Uh, when we go to bed at night, he'll rub my feet until I fall asleep. And then when I wake up in the morning, he greets me with a latte. Can I? That's, that's my wish, Jeannie. And so the genie paused and said, let me see that map again. <laughs> Some things seem impossible. Sometimes the Christian faith seems impossible. Sometimes it seems impossible to actually live the words of this, of this book. And if it is possible, how do we even do it, really? When Jesus walked the earth and taught, he had a, a central message. His central message was the kingdom of God. It's something we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, whenever Jesus preached, there was always a nod to the kingdom of God. He was always thinking about it, always talking about it. Jesus even said in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and everything else will be added to you. Everything else that you need. Before anything else in life, seek first the kingdom. The kingdom is something that is formed in me. When Jesus spoke of the kingdom, he was speaking about God's rule, God's reign, God's way. 
But he was always also speaking in terms of this reality that can be formed in me in which I become more like Christ. I love that word formed because formed implies a process and we are all in a process, every single one of us. So when we come to a sermon Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in the Gospels of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is speaking about the ideals of the kingdom of God what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of, of heaven. And some of the things he, he speaks about are difficult, hard. Some even seem impossible. You see, Jesus, in his sermon, reorders everything. Jesus reorders everything as was culturally understood in the first century. He also reorders things in our time, how we view life and In this sermon, Jesus is going to speak about power, he's going to speak about purpose, and he speaks about presence. This morning, we're going to talk about two of those, power and presence, and next week, we're going to go to purpose. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is going to address power. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This first section of the Sermon on the Mount is often referred to as the Beatitudes. Uh, There's a lot of debate about this sermon that Jesus gave. Some believe that This sermon that Jesus gave was literally Jesus sitting on a mountainside teaching his disciples. There are others that believe that that Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 are just a collection of Jesus' sayings that were brought together in in one place. But but regardless of, of what you believe, Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God being formed in us. When we come to the Beatitudes, they're, they're, they're funny because when we, when we read them, we get this notion in our mind that maybe these are the things that we're supposed to pursue, we're supposed to become these things, so we're blessed. But I've sat, as I've sat with these, these Beatitudes, I don't believe they're things that we pursue necessarily, but they're sacred spaces in which God meets us in unique ways right in the midst of the reality of life. Because when you think about the words themselves, Blessed are those that mourn. Like, I don't, I don't pursue mourning. I don't want to mourn and grieve. If I'm mourning, that means I've lost something. I've lost someone. I've lost something of value to me. 
When I'm mourning, that means something bad has happened. And I don't want bad stuff to happen to me. But what Jesus is saying is, you're blessed when you mourn because God meets you in your mourning in a profound way. And I certainly don't want to be insulted. I mean, blessed are those who are insulted. Like, I don't wake up in the morning and say, boy, I hope someone insults me in church today. That's just really what I want because I want to be blessed. No, I think what Jesus is saying is even in the midst of insult, I'm with you and you're blessed and I meet you there in a profound way. I mean, blessed are the poor in spirit. That phrase literally means the spiritually destitute. Those that are looking for meaning because they're empty and struggling. And Jesus says, I'm going to meet you right in the midst of your spiritual poverty and I'm going to bless you. See, Jesus redefines how we look at things. Jesus redefines how we look at power and its expression. And power is is simply the ability to do something, to have influence or control. And every one of us has power. We all possess it. And we can use it for good and for right. Um, Each day I, I ask my son to empty the dishwasher. And when I ask him to empty the dishwasher, I'm expressing power. Because like, I'm not suggesting he empties the dishwasher. I'm not saying, hey, if you feel like it, buddy, go ahead and just empty the dishwasher. But if not, no big deal. No, 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 no. Empty the dishwasher. And he knows that if he doesn't, there's going to be a consequence attached to it. It's me expressing power. Each month when I write a check to Compassion International or International Needs Ghana to pay for the children I sponsor in Africa. I'm expressing the ability to do something. I'm expressing power because I'm influencing a situation. I'm influencing life. Power can be a good thing and we all possess it. But power can also be used to intimidate, manipulate, abuse and control. And there are certain types of people that crave this expression of power. When I was in Colorado Springs, our neighborhood had a homeowners association. Anybody live in a homeowners association? I also have one now, but it was nothing like the one in Colorado. The one in Colorado was draconian. There was a a rule in our bylaws as to how, how high you could allow your grass to go before it needed to be cut. And there was a guy that drove around and measured your grass. And I know this because I got a letter in the mail one day that said your grass was a quarter inch too too tall, mow it this week, or the fine is this. I'm like, seriously? You've got nothing better to do? And there are certain types of people that crave that power. The Greeks had a word for it. The word is thymos. It means the need, the desperate need for recognition and control. But see, how we view power as a follower of Christ really defines our sense of self. As a kid, much like you, I was asked from time to time, what do you want to do when you grow up? And as a kid, like, I wanted to be a zoologist. Like, I loved animals, subscribed to Ranger Rick magazine. And so I I, I did. I wanted wanted to work at a zoo. I thought that'd be so cool, right? But no one ever asked me, who I wanted to be when I grew up. Like, what did I want my relationships to look like? My character, my integrity. Because the answer to that question influences how I'm going to behave. 
how I'm going to view myself, how I'm going to view others. Because see, power can be expressed in all kinds of distorted ways. There's this emerging sense of power that I've noticed most recently in our culture that I'll simply refer to as the power of a victim mentality. It's a new kind of power. Now that's to be differentiated from a victim because someone who's a victim is someone who's been harmed or injured or killed as a result of a crime, an accident, event, or an action. Like a victim, a real event has happened that's harmed them. But someone that lives with a victim mentality it's not an event, it's a way of thinking. And it's an expression of control and power. Because see, if I have a victim mentality, it's always someone else's fault. And that gives me a sense of power. But when I have a victim mentality, I live with the refusal to take personal responsibility. When I live with a victim mentality, I need special treatment. Because I'm right and everyone else is wrong and unfair. And there's power in that. Problem, however, is it's hard to thrive when you're always offended. There are some that refer to this as the fundamental attribution error, which in the world of mental health means that when others' behavior is poor, we say it's because of their character. But when my behavior is poor, it's because of my circumstance. And Jesus turns that whole thing upside down. See, in the kingdom of God, power is defined and redefined in some practical yet countercultural ways. And in Jesus' kingdom, power is always expressed for the thriving of others and the building of his kingdom. And Jesus even said that part of his mission is so, so that you and I would thrive and flourish. Gospel of John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life, the, the, the they is you. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In the New King James Version, it's translated this way. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. In the New Living Translation, it reads, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Power is used most effectively when it's used for human flourishing and the expansion of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus in the Beatitudes redefines power through mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I mean, mercy is an extension of power. When I extend mercy, I'm showing lenience, compassion, forgiveness, especially towards someone who's hurt or offended me. And when I do this in Jesus' name, I'm building the kingdom. On June 17th, 2005, Dylan Roof, who was a white supremacist, walked into Mother Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and killed nine people having a Bible study. It was a horrific event rooted in hate and evil. At Dylan Roof's hearing at his trial, some of the family members of the victims were allowed to address Dylan personally. A woman named Nadine Collier, who lost her mother Ethel, looked Dylan Roof in the eyes and she said these words, and I quote, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I'll never be able to hold her again but I forgive you and I have mercy on your soul. 
That's power. It didn't remove his consequences. He got the death sentence. But that's power. How? It's power because God met her in a profound way in that moment. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus also redefines power through peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul loosely quotes the Sermon on the Mount, and he concludes his quote by saying, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, I've come to believe that there is a difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. See, a peacekeeper just wants to maintain the absence of conflict in all of life. See, See, peacekeepers will change the subject if there's a tough conversation because they want to avoid conflict. A peacekeeper always avoids conflict. Peacekeepers are passive. They don't want to ruffle feathers because ruffling feathers, well, that creates conflict. And peacekeepers don't like conflict. But peacemakers, peacemakers do not avoid conflict, but they speak truth to remove obstacles that keep peace from emerging in the first place. See, peacemakers will speak truth to lies. Peacemakers are honest instead of hypocritical. Peacemakers always extend grace into legalism. Peacemakers bring holiness into carnality. Peacemakers deal with the source of what's causing the conflict in the first place. Peacemakers are proactive. And Jesus was a peacemaker and redefines power through peacemaking. See, in the Beatitudes, Jesus takes all these things that we've come to believe and turns them upside down. No, peace doesn't come through force. It comes through something else. As we move through this sermon, Jesus then begins to talk about all kinds of arenas of life. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 talks about the kingdom formed in us in practical, earthy ways. He addresses the common, everyday realities of living. In one place into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. You've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, I'm reading the Sermon on the Mount this week to prepare for today. And I, I believe the Bible will invade our inner life if we allow it to. It'll do something to us. And I'm reading the Sermon on the Mount, you know, preparing this message for you because you all need it, right? Not me. And because I'm a pastor and pastors are holy and righteous and good. And, you know, the pastors are notorious for telling their congregations about all of the things they've already overcome. And now we are the epitome and the embodiment of holiness. And yet, as I read the Sermon on the Mount this week, I realized there's a person in my life that I'm really angry with, not was angry with, am angry with. Like when I think about them, my fists clench. It's one thing for you, for me to talk about the things I've already overcome, but I'm going to tell you, I've not overcome this one yet because there is an individual in my life that when I think about them, I seethe. 
and I'm trying to figure it out because I want the kingdom of God formed in me. Jesus talks about lust and divorce, promise-making and retaliation. He talks about enemies and the giving and receiving of money and anxiety and judging others. And the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto you. And all of these are ethical ways of being in the world as citizens of the kingdom of God. And this is the ideal. This is what it means. This is the action of the kingdom. And yet in the midst of it, Jesus knew fully that we will struggle and strive to form these things in us for the rest of our lives because it just doesn't happen magically. And I think Jesus knew that. I mean, he set high standards, but, but there are just some things he knew. I mean, there's one place Jesus said, You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in her heart. It's better for you to gouge out your eye than for your whole body to go in hell. Now, obviously, none of us takes that literally because we all have two eyes, right? So what's the deeper meaning here? I mean, Jesus is pointing us to the kingdom ideal. Value others. Don't look at others as an object Look at others as your brothers and sisters in Christ formed in the image of God. He then goes on to say, don't be anxious for anything. For anything? I mean, if you've been here long enough, you've heard me talk about my own battles with anxiety. Don't be anxious for anything? I read that verse and I feel anxious about being anxious. (laughs) But Jesus is simply pointing to the ideal. Don't judge others. I judged someone yesterday. See, the the Sermon on the Mount forces me to take a look at my inner life, at who I really am. What do I find? And as I look deep inside, are my concerns with the temporary issues of culture or the external concerns, the eternal concerns of the kingdom? Because we get really wrapped up in just the temporary issues of life. and, And, you know, of course... We always have the answers. I mean, I, if, I, I've heard so, so, maybe I've even said myself, you know, if I were in charge of things, things would be different. If I were in charge, if I were president, I'd have things under control. If I were president, like if I were leading, I'd do so much better than that idiot that's in office right now. And I'm like, seriously, you can't even manage your five-year-old. Are we constantly just reacting to things? Are we more concerned with winning or reconciliation? Am I constantly looking for wars to fight and reasons to be right? Or am I looking for feet to wash? Because our response to the world has already been prescribed for us and modeled to us by the one that we call Savior. The one who invites us to seek first the kingdom. That's the first thing. And let that kingdom be formed in me. My priority each morning is to sit with the one that I call Savior and and allow his kingdom to be formed in me. As I read the Sermon on the Mount, I got to make room for those places where God nudges me and says, hey, this area right here. See, as the kingdom of God is formed in me, my identity begins to change. 
I don't find my identity in the externals of what life is, but in the reality as a citizen of the kingdom. Now, I want you to hear, I want you to hear from, from the scripture who God says you are as a citizen of his kingdom. He says that in him, you're complete. Colossians chapter two, verse 10. In his kingdom, you are alive with Christ. Ephesians chapter two, verse five. You are free from the law of sin and death. Romans chapter eight, verse two. You are holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians chapter one, verse four. I have the peace. I have access to the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Philippians chapter four, verse seven. The spirit of God who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. First John chapter four, verse four. I am chosen by God who called me out of darkness and into light. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. I am born again, spiritually transformed and set apart for God's purpose. First Peter chapter one, verse 23. I am God's unique workmanship created in Christ to do good. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. I'm a new creation. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven of all my sins through the blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. I've been rescued from the domain and power of darkness and brought into God's kingdom. Colossians chapter one, verse 13. My life and my faith is rooted in Christ and I overflow in thanksgiving because of what he's done for me. Colossians chapter two, verse seven. I, I am greatly loved by God. First John chapter three, verse 16. See, when my identity is rooted in him, that greatly increases my threshold for pain. And I think we need to increase our threshold for pain. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I think Jesus is saying, if you're experiencing pain, you're blessed. Grow some some thick skin, right? Sometimes life is tough. Pain is promised. Let's get some some grit and rest in him. But that's hard for me because I'm a chronic people pleaser. Right Now, I, I know some friends of mine say, well, I don't care what people think about me. Yeah, you do, but okay, be tough. I care what people think about me. I do. I want to make people happy. So it's hard when someone who does not hold my view of faith critiques me or makes assumptions about me or calls me names because of what I believe. I don't, I don't like it. And yet there are some orthodox Christian views that shape my conscience that aren't always popular in culture. Sometimes I'm called things that aren't true or fair. And sometimes, sometimes the pain comes from within the body of Christ. I mean, sometimes we say awful things to each other do things to each other, hurt each other, because we're humans, you know. But I still don't like it. Just like you. Every once in a while, every once in a great while here, I get an unsigned communication critiquing me of something. 
it used to really sting me. But I'm like, you know what? My identity's in him. Now I look at it, I snicker and throw it in the trash. Because if someone's not mature enough to sign it and have a conversation, I'm not going to worry about it. My relationship with God and your relationship with God is not diminished by other people's immaturity. I mean, yep, sometimes we get hurt in church and we kind of use that as an excuse. Well, I got hurt in church and so I'm just mad at God and everybody. No, my relationship with God is not diminished by others' immaturity because I know my identity in him. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I rest in him. I, I love that the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes because God, God chooses to bless us before he makes demands of us. Yeah, he sets high standards, but offers a whole lot of grace. Now, what Jesus preaches about in this sermon, these are the norms of the kingdom. And as we faithfully follow Jesus in this imperfect world, we're going to have to work this stuff out because it's not going to come magically. It's going to be, it's going to be a challenge. But, but I want to go back to St. Francis of Assisi. Start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible. And suddenly, you're doing the impossible. There are moments that the anger that I feel seems impossible, like I'll never get over it. But I just start doing things that are necessary. Maybe this week I'll pray for that person I'm angry at. Because I can do that. Even if I say it through gritted teeth, even if I don't fully mean it, I can, I can do that. Or maybe when I go to the gym and I see that young lady wearing a whole lot of nothing, I, I just turn my head and go the other way. Instead of taking that second glance, I'm doing what's necessary. Just like you. I mean, Jesus had some pretty hard things to say about marriage and divorce. And I, mean, I don't believe he said it in a judgy way. I just think he was setting up his ideal. And quite frankly, you know, my wife and I, you've heard me tell the story. We hit a hard spot once and it was, that word was used. But we figured it out. Again, I don't say that judgmental. I just know that sometimes what seems impossible is possible when you do what's necessary and when you do what is possible. Anxiety? Each day. All right, God, this is yours. See, Christ and his kingdom are being formed in me. And there's a lot of room for error. A lot of grace for error, but that can't be an excuse for complacency. Because the Sermon on the Mount calls us to become something better. And so God, our prayer, my prayer, is that you would form your kingdom in each one of us. Some of these words in this sermon are hard. They're hard for me to live. They're hard to, to do, and yet they're really good. I mean, living this way is really good. There's a lot of life in it. And so I struggle and I wrestle because I want to be like you formed in your image. I, I want to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so I thank you for your grace when I fail. But I thank you for the nudge when I need it. So keep nudging me, Lord. Keep nudging us all. Amen.